the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. It's fun. It's interesting. It's weird. It's whatever you want it to be. Thanks for listening. Welcome to episode 18 of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. I'm Kyle, your host. How's it going, guys? Uh, Nothing much to report on the Western Front here uh, compared to last week's intro monologue. Still doing the same old thing. Still studying for my boards test. But in between time, I am still your faithful host creating more and more content, podcast content, for you to have and to hold and to listen to and to do whatever it is you do with it, whether it's listen to me because you like me and because you support me, which is wonderful, or listen to me to get through a boring work day or as something that you just enjoy listening to. Maybe you like hearing a story about somebody you've never heard of or you have heard of and you enjoy my take on them. Either way, whatever it is that you're Whatever reasons you have for listening to the podcast, thank you for joining me today, as you always do. Um, but yeah, not not much to report in my own life, and not much to report on anything there. Just um, this is one of those things where I'm kind of in a rock and a hard place because I know I should be studying, but for the most part, most of my studying is just doing practice test questions to to, to sort of test my knowledge and to continue to refine my skills in the arena of of NCLEX, which is the nursing boards test, NCLEX style testing questions. So after you do after you do like two, three, four hundred of those in a day, you really get kind of sick of just answering questions over and over and over and over again. And this becomes my sort of sweet release doing something that I, I find very entertaining, um, doing something where I like to talk about somebody interesting and, and, and all that kind of fun stuff. So I'm glad you joined me again on this this lovely Friday, I guess whenever you're listening to it, it could be any time really, uh, hello future humanity, if, if somebody from the year 5000 is listening to this, um, first of all, why? Second of all, thanks for listening, uh, future ridiculous uh, human beings or aliens. But thanks regardless, whoever you are, wherever you are, whenever you are, for joining me on another episode today. We're getting close to episode 20, another landmark in the history of this particular show. Um, I guess in terms of any sort of updates on how the show's going, uh, I may be postponing finding a new host and stuff for a while, only because I am so busy with studying for the test and doing all that stuff, and then I'll be... Um, you know, everything goes well and the test is successful and I pass my board test and can become a registered nurse, I will then start my job pretty quickly thereafter going through orientation and then going through like two or three years of just me feeling like I'm a piece of shit and knows nothing about anything. But I look forward to it because the pay is a lot better than any job I've ever had in my life and it's fulfilling work and uh, I spent four years going to school for it so I, I better goddamn have some connection to the job over uh, an amount of time. But in terms of, of the fate of the podcast, we'll continue doing it as we are right now. Hosting may wait for a little while. I mean, I'm going to have to pay for hosting at some point here, whether I like it or not, wherever I like it or not. So the rates that this company has are about competitive with pretty much anybody else. So I will probably stick with them for a little while until I make a better uh, more focused decision on where I want to take the podcast. Um, and we'll see about web design as well. If there's anybody out there who's like a pretty decent 
web designer who can, you know, make it make a really cool looking website and can really because I'll probably end up getting a domain name at some point for the podcast. And I don't know, I mean, it's a whole thing. I every single day that I think about the show, I think about you know, is this where it should be? Is this a good name for the show? Is this a good format? for the show. When I start bringing people that I want to talk to on the show, will the vibe of the show change? Will the aim of the show change? For the most part, it's just a, a, a history podcast where I talk about something that I find interesting. That's about as far as it goes. Um, the history isn't super focused. The, the, the people are from all different eras and walks of life. So it's not like some people's podcasts or history shows where they talk about a specific era or specific civilization or even a specific type of person, like, say, a presidential history podcast or something like that. This one's kind of all over the place. So already, even though it is in the niche of history podcast, it is not as focused. And I'm sometimes afraid that when I start to bring people on, and I do want to do that still, I'd, I'd still love to talk to people on my show, I then start to think we're going to get even more broad with the entire thing. We're going to get even more you know, away from the focus, the focus of the show. And that can really hurt it sometimes. I you know if I want more people to listen, you know, that the more uh, you think, the more people I can reach in terms of, of, of variety is a good thing. But if, if you get too broad, then none of the content that you give is usually very, I guess, in-depth or good. I hate to use the word good in that way, but like, it, it it can be really tough to to get an audience to stay interested when you're just your shit is just all over the place. Like when somebody subscribes to a podcast or subscribes to a show, whatever it is that they're doing, they typically do it for a reason. And that reason is usually they're interested in what that person has to say. And almost always it's not what that person has to say just in general. There are a few people who have shows where all they do is talk about you know, just whatever the fuck they want. Uh, Bill Burr, Joe Rogan, guys like that. Even though they have sort of specific aims here and there, for the most part, those guys do shows where they just talk about, you know, stuff that interests them with people that's interesting to them. And they can do that because they just can talk at length. They have a lot of reach. They know a lot of famous people. And they can just go on and on and on. So that sort of uh, uh, curves into itself, whereas I don't have that uh, sort of thing going on. So... You know, sometimes afraid that the podcast would almost just sort of wither off and die. Not like it's not, you know, already not popular at all. I mean, it just is one of these things, you know, it's it's tough to break into the landscape when there's also, you know, a million other podcasts out there. But anyway, this is just all me musing on the future of the show. For now, you're going to get it as you're getting it now. Uh, we'll continue with the, uh, the weekly shows, and I do have an episode of the Bonus Variety planned for next probably Tuesday or so and then I'll have another episode next Friday as well so you're going to get three in the matter of a week here starting tomorrow and I have my test next Saturday the 20th so um, I'm going to try to get all these recorded and banked them up and ready to go so you have something to listen to and something to enjoy um, but yeah I'm just going to crank these bad boys out you're going to get some cool fun interesting stories about some weird ass people and I am going to get the satisfaction of not studying for a test that I probably should be studying for, but also the questions just fucking melt my brain. So I do need a little bit of a break, and this is how I take that break. Guys, this is episode 18 of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast, and if I didn't mention who it's about, and I, I know I haven't, if I didn't mention who it was about at the top of the show, this is about Walter Hunt, a prolific inventor in American history that you've probably never heard of, but very very certain that you have at least one of his inventions in your house right at this minute. Guys, episode 18 of the podcast. Stick with me.
guys, Walter Hunt. This is a story that I like to uh, sort of put the guys around, put the quotes around, so to speak. It's a story of of missed potential, a story of really kind of getting there and then not really getting there, being there and really just not getting there. So, I mean, you've heard of of many of the prolific inventors that have existed, especially in American society, guys like Thomas Edison and Nikola Tesla and, and others of, of that nature, guys who have just went absolutely apeshit with brilliant minds and have changed the face of our lives, you know, over spans of time. We talked about Hedy Lamar as well on episode, I believe it was episode 10 of the show just a, a, a few weeks ago. Um, and she was an inventor as well, a, a very famous Hollywood actress and an inventor as well. Not many people, though, I, I feel like have heard of Walter Hunt, and even I had not heard of him until maybe a couple of months ago when I stumbled across his story and wrote down that I was going to have to talk about him because the guy is an, is, is an absolute genius, yet nobody's ever heard of him. It, it, it's It's crazy. So Walter Hunt was born uh, July 29th, 1796 in Martinsburg, New York City, and he died uh, June 8th of 1859. So he lived to be 62 years old, pretty unremarkable, and he was noted for inventing an insane amount of things that you probably either know about, have seen, uh, things that would eventually translate into more advanced versions of themselves that would be still used to this day, or even something, like I said at the top of the show, even something that you might have uh, in your home already. Uh, so anyway, let's just let's just start from the beginning real quick. Like I said, he was born in 1796 in Lewis County, New York. Uh, his beginnings were extremely humble, and surprisingly, this is a guy who wasn't actually all that educated. Um, he was educated in a one-room schoolhouse. He was the eldest of a whopping 13 children. That's right, 13 kids, and he was A number one with a bullet on top of the list there. Uh, classics, you know, 18th, 19th century family just have literally a litter of children because you know the smallpox and you know the polio and you know the the cholera, and you know the 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 consumption and, uh, and all the things, they're coming for you. So you got to have a lot of kids. So they don't, you know. So at least a few of them survive and then uh, uh, make their line. And hey, you know, just speaking of that, as a random aside, before we go any farther with with Mister Hunt here, our ancestors bang a langin to the point where they just had a billion kids. Uh, and most of them die, but some live. That's the reason we're all still here today, because we are all, uh, as humans, related to, you know, generationally to the humans before us. So if, if, if our early ancestors decided not to, you know, basically have uh, the, the lady of the house dedicate her life to just pumping out kids for, you know, half of her existence, I guess... We wouldn't be here today. So hey, this is a this is a roundabout shout out to the ladies for making it happen for humanity in general. But anyhow, Mr. Hunt, eldest of thirteen children, he left his formal education in his early teens because he wanted to settle into the life of a simple farmer. That's all he really kind of thought. He was from a large family. They're from upstate New York. Uh, it was, and especially upstate New York, still to this day is still not you know nearly as nearly as heavily populated it's still populated obviously but not you know as heavily populated these days as uh New York City uh and the like everywhere on the 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 east coast but you know a, a man from upstate New York from humble beginnings probably you know raised on a farm and is going to continue to be a farmer you know get some formal schooling but not too much just a one room schoolhouse no fancy no fancy prep school no fancy uh, high school and university or any of that stuff. Just you know, got your uh, got your reading, writing, and arithmetic. Your three R's. You know, hey oh, America, and you know it, it, he's he's the type of guy that you would look at, and you would look at his story, and you'd be like, this guy doesn't do, didn't do anything. This guy didn't do anything. He's literally the he's literally like the average 
18th, 19th century American man, you know, born to a gigantic family in rural America, becomes a farmer. Uh, pretty much the, the story of 90% of the people who you know and hear about uh, being American citizens in this this time. But what he had that separated him uh, from those around him was this weird, you know, curiosity that he had for tinkering around with stuff, for for being mechanically minded. And to me, when I read his story, this is very much uh, uh, the type of guy who, like, my uh, electrical engineering and mechanical engineering friends would have uh, an affinity for, would share, you know, that sort of spirit with. He's a guy that even if he wasn't terribly educated, even if he wasn't this, that, or the other thing, he always had that thing in him, something that would eat at his mind, eat at his heart, where he just wanted to sit down and mess with something and figure out how it worked and figure out how he could put something together or figure out how he could make uh, something better than it was than it already was. So he's hanging out on his farm, and he's, he's tinkering around, and he soon finds himself helping out around uh, at a nearby textile mill where a lot of his family members had worked or were working, and he would help the owner. The owner's name was Willis Hoskins and another worker, uh, Zyba Knox, and he would help them make improvements to their flax spinning machine that they used there. So this is kind of the beginning or the nexus of, of Mr. Hunt's, you know, sort of mind for invention. But at this point, even with all the things that I've I've been saying about him, it doesn't really seem all that crazy or weird, right? This still just kind of seems like the average American man, you know, guy who big family, works on the farm, not terribly educated, but not necessarily uneducated, you know, and a guy who, you know, just likes to tinker around because what else is there to do? It's like the early 1800s, you know, 18-teens, 1820s, what the fuck else are you supposed to do but jack around with a bunch of shit that you have lying around, you know, just to see either how it works or just uh, idly pass the time around. So he's hanging out. He's hanging out with this textile mill over with uh, Mr. Hoskins, uh, and he's just kind of hanging out, making the machine improve, the flaxseed spinning machine, and, and they're making it happen. And you know, he he helps them actually improve the machine to the point where it it really helps efficiency. Well, he was he was left out of that patent, which <laughs> the the Mr. Hoskins and and company made a patent for what he helped them do, and that's going to be a very common thread with Walter Hunt. Always the bridesmaid and never the bride when it comes to what he could do. He was an incredibly intelligent man with an inventive mind that rivaled, you know, the best of our generation, the best of their generation, and still never really, you're going to see as we continue talking about it, never really caught on with uh, what he, what he, what the potential could have been. Had he had better advice or had he had, um, you know, any mind for what he was doing at all, this guy would be, he would be in your textbook and you would know that he exists because he'd be a guy who invented shit that's important, which he was, but in at the same time, he would be a guy who invented shit that was important and was rich, which he was not, absolutely was not. So anyhow, like we're saying, he was left off the, the original patent for the flaxseed spinning machine that he helped develop with Mr. Hoskins, but being the ever ever ticking, moving, grinding gear of an inventor's mind that Walter Hunt was, he decided, well, fuck it. If if they're going to take this patent away from me, I don't give a shit. I'm going to make a better machine. I'm going to make an even better machine than the already improved machine that we just made. So that's what he does. He invents an even better flax uh, spinning machine, and he patents that himself, having learned his lesson, right? Well, sort of. He, he at least learns his lesson that, hey, if I have stuff, I should definitely patent it at least and, and make that work. So he gets his even better machine. He says, I'm going to skip on down to New York City, the big old city downstate, and I'm going to make my fortune. I'm going to make my fortune. I'm going to be able to support my family. Here we go. So he takes the trip down to New York City, and he proceeds to ask bank after bank after bank after bank to help him out, none of whom decide to give him the time of day and we can assume that this is the case because he 
you know, to them probably looked like some sort of a hayseed type who was just, you know, bumbling around from wherever the hell he's from country and want to wanted to take their money and they couldn't trust this uh, this bumbling idiot guy just speaking plain language. And, you know, it's the whole thing like we just talked about, the lack of formal education and the, the small town upbringing probably didn't work in his favor here. And he was not able to secure any funding to help manufacture the machine that he patented. So instead of, you know, continuing to try that, continuing to try to find somebody who could back his patent and build the machine he had, he then decided to sell that patent itself to help move his family to New York City, where he would continue his inventing ways. And like we were saying before, this is the other pattern that Mr. Hunt would establish um, with the patents and the selling and the so on. So he figures, okay, well, I invented this thing, but I got plenty of other ideas in my head. It's going to be awesome. Here we go. I'll just sell this patent. I'll make some money off the selling of this patent, and I will continue my my good work. So the next year, this was in 1826 that this all happened. In 1827, Mr. Hunt then files for his second patent, this time for a foot-operated gong to be fitted in carriages. So that kind of sounds like a weird Adventure, I have foot operated gong. It is basically the precursor to any sort of alarm on a moving vehicle, right? This is the 1820s. There are no automobiles yet at this point. Everything is still horse drawn. So, you know, but the cities are still, you know, popping and moving and everything. New York City still has a lot of people in it. Um, so there's a lot of commotion going on there are still people driving around their carriages and and what have you and he was the first guy to be like hey maybe i should put something in a in a carriage that is going to make sound that would alert other people that hey there's a carriage coming and this is what's going to happen he said he was uh inspired to create this device after having witnessed a small girl be hit by a horse carriage so, you know, and, and and really, this was a pretty common thing at the time. You know, people were just kind of <laughs> there weren't really nearly as many rules of the road, both spoken and unspoken, as there are nowadays with uh, the modern automobile. So people are just kind of, you know, existing in the old west of society and basically barely making it work on basically dirt roads or cobblestone type roads or just, you know, shithole everything's. Where it's just like, well, I'm going to drive on this side, or I'm going to drive in the middle, or I'm going to drive on this side, or I'm just going to drive sideways. I don't care. I'm just going to do whatever. And this is all the same time while people are walking around being crazy. So he sees a little girl get hit by a horse carriage and says, I think I can help. I think there, you know, there has to be something that someone can do. So he, uh, he, Invented a better way because at this point, guys, for the most part, most carriages were fairly silent running. They were just, you know, piloted or driven, I guess you could say, by a guy out in the front of the carriage who I guess the only sound that was really whatever would be him yelling at people. Uh, Sometimes these carriage drivers would actually use air horns already before the, 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 the foot operated gong that he invented. They would use air horns. But having to use the air horn required the driver to have at least one hand free to operate it, which is usually a problem because they were driving not a car and a wheel, but horses, you know, with both hands on the reins, which made it a little bit more difficult. Hey, hey, a foot pedal operated gong solves this problem. But as everything goes with Walter Hunt, despite the appeal and the necessity of his invention being extremely obvious... He similarly had trouble securing an investor to fund manufacturing and had to sell the patent and move on to his next invention. So he's kind of stuck in this rut where he makes just enough money off selling patents to continue living and continue doing his work, but never enough money to actually make it big and having to stop working his ass off to make crazy things. Okay, well, the inventor's spirit is not dead yet. And as we move then uh, into a little bit later, uh, past um, into the 1840s now, we're looking at Walter Hunt just kind of back and forth, back and forth, selling his inventions, doing this and that. And the other thing, 
this is where his most famous invention comes into play. So really, when you look at his life, we can sort of um, assume it was never really written down. He never really uh, admitted as much. But it's very likely that the reason he would always invent something and then sell the patent for it instead of just waiting around for somebody to finally invest in him and his product where he could make a little bit more money uh, more quickly was probably because he was always rather low on funds, you know, always kind of, you know, trying to support his family uh, and, and all that kind of stuff. And in this time, he had this little debt from a, from a draftsman named J.R. Chapin. This J.R. Chapin was really hankering for a $15, you know, indebtedude that he uh, that Hunt owed to him. 15 bucks is equivalent to about $400 in today's dollars. So still not a terribly crazy debt. I mean, 400 bucks is, is not a small amount of money, but it's definitely not in the thousands, tens, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars of debt. It's like, you know, 400 bucks, you just work hard for a week and you have 400 bucks, you know. So, you know, Hunt was low on funds. He he was being pressured to give this guy his money. So he did what he always did, and he just decided to sit down and invent something and sell a patent for it. The thing he invented was the modern safety pin. As I said at the top of the show, something that probably everybody has sitting around somewhere, safety pin or pins, and some of my listeners, maybe one or two of you, I hope, because it will be fun, are actually wearing something that is safety pinned in some way on your person as I talk about safety pins. He literally looked around, spent about three hours mulling it around in his head, and then fucking around with a spool of wire and ended up inventing one of the most prolific things that you can think of, not because it's like so crazy and super important, but because it is so ubiquitous and just it is everywhere. And in addition to it being sort of everywhere, the design that he came up with that he patented is the basically the exact same design that we're still using now in 2018. Very, very, very little has changed with the design of safety pins since he came out with them, which is which is a testament to say them, hey man, if you do it right, you better, you know, do it right on the first try or or don't do it at all. And he was and he nailed it. He it's pretty odd when somebody can invent something that is just so good on its own that you just say, Well, that's it, man. That's okay. Got it. Let's just pack it up and leave. We got it. And that's what he ended up doing. He made the safety pin. You have a safety pin in your house, very likely, and you can thank Walter Hunt for fucking around with a spool of wire for three hours because he had to pay some dude 15 bucks for making the thing that literally is one of the panaceas, one of the fix-alls in clothing. Oh, something's not attached to something else. Oh, put a safety pin on it. Oh, uh, we use safety pins all the time in marching band. Uh, I was... uh, I think I mentioned this many shows ago, maybe in episode one, and haven't said a goddamn thing about it since. But I was a member of marching bands both in high school and at the collegiate level. And safety pens were a fucking godsend for every single thing that we ever had and would ever do. It was it was amazing. Safety pens are the reason why my uh, little fancy my little fancy cape wouldn't fall off me when I was marching around the field for the University of Nebraska. It was it's pretty amazing. And this is this is the guy I can now posthumously thank for doing so. Thanks for inventing that, my friend. But as he always did, he sold a patent for the safety pen for about four hundred dollars. So he makes four hundred bucks, which is about eleven thousand uh, dollars worth of money today. He makes four hundred bucks, so he can. Very much, uh, very, very much pay off that $15 debt that he owes. He sold uh, uh, the patent to a company uh, called the W.R. Grace and Company, Company, I guess, uh, whom would go on to make millions and millions of dollars off their products. So, hey, there you go, Walter. Sorry, dude. I mean, you made some money, but you didn't make near as much money as you could have. Another famous thing. That Walter Hunt, because he doesn't end there. This 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 fellow's got a got a mind that never stopped. Another thing that he invented, probably one of his other extremely popular things, 
that you still see to this day. You could still see this particular invention to this day. Now, not not exactly. This is not going to be one of those things where he just knocked it out of the park. Bada bang, bada boom. And he was done with it. But it is something that he would, um, that really became a very famous, popular thing for a long time. And the the very essence of it, the very idea of it, is still used today. So he ha- came up with, and, and who knows how or why he came up with it, but he came up with something he liked to call the volitional repeating rifle. A man named George Aerosmith was extremely impressed with what Hunt had come up with and decided to, uh, like we've been saying a thousand times and will become the most repeatable phrase of this particular episode, he bought the patent from Hunt. Hunt then is, is out of the picture at this point, but that patent that he made for his volitional repeating rifle, Aerosmith took from him and then he, in turn, sold that same patent to uh, Benjamin Tyler Henry, Horace Smith, and Daniel Wesson. And you might uh, recognize those two men's last name as Smith and Wesson of gun fame. They eventually took that rifle design, and it served as the basis for what is called the Henry Repeating Rifle, which then evolved further into the extremely famous uh, Winchester repeating rifle, probably one of the most famous guns that has ever, ever been made in, in all of history. A gun that saw service, you know, uh, towards the end of the Civil War, all the way into the, basically up to World War II, you would see the Winchester repeater as a gun, not only for the military, but for civilians as well. If you are unfamiliar with what a repeating rifle looks like it is uh the type where you have you know a a a typical rifle gun look and you have that little um kind of figure eight looking lever that you would push down with your hand and then cock it back up and that would you know you would you could be able to basically shoot uh semi-automatically with this rifle uh nearly rather than actually having to do like you would do in war times like if you see if you see in wartime sometimes the uh, uh, the musket, which is another extremely popular firearm that was prolific for a long time, that was something that was invented and then sort of improved upon, but not really improved upon a ton, because there was really only so far you can go with uh, the musket. But the the whole point of the musket was, you know, it was this very long, uh, sometimes rifled inside barrel, but usually a smooth bore barrel, long firearm that you would have to, you know, load every single shot into you. Take a shot um, at wherever you're shooting, and then you would put your gun down, you know, get your cartridges out, get your balls, your balls, get your balls out, boys. Get your uh, musket balls or whatever you're going to have out. Get your your powder and this that you'd load and, you know, take the little uh, rod and push everything down into there take aim and fire, repeat, and so forth. It would have took, you know, even even a very extremely uh, uh, skilled musketman could could really only do a, a few shots per minute. Well, with the repeating rifle, you could now take very many shots per minute, and it was extremely popular and extremely widely used um, towards the end of the Civil War and, and so on and so forth. So another, another extremely awesome thing that became uh i mean the basis of the you know smith and wesson just making millions and millions of dollars off one of the most famous guns of all time and you know mr hunt was basically cut a check for peanuts for his patent that led him there this is this is not the end of his inventions though this this continues this continues onward so after he makes he's at this point we've seen him make the safety pen super popular we see him make his flax spinning machine. That was the 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 impetus of his entire inventive career. We've seen him make the basically the the repeating rifle. Well, what else? What else? What else he got for us, Mister Hunt? Well, in addition to this, he also basically invented the first commercially viable sewing machine. Because at this point, you still have that sort of um, you know foot operated or uh, you know, not automatic sort of loom system where so sewing and uh, uh, 
clothing, you know, manufacturing was still a fairly slow ordeal, a very uh, a human-intensive activity, and he invented basically the first real good sewing machine where you could really just crank out fucking clothes like crazy. And he invented the the most important part was the two-threaded lock stitch mechanism. And all these, um, when I when I uh, get the episode out, all of these, I will post little patent pictures and stuff of that he's made. And even that one, I mean, it's no safety pin again, but uh, his his lock stitch mechanism is still fairly close to what people use today. And I don't claim to be uh, a sewing expert. I took home ec, uh in seventh grade when I moved to the place where I would eventually go to high school. And that's about as far as my sewing uh, my sewing experience goes. I was sort of taught how sewing works, but honestly, that shit baffles me to no end. I have no clue how sewing machines work or how any of this shit works, or how any of the thread goes anywhere where you want to do it. I can't think exactly three-dimensionally when it comes to, like, the the sewing of clothes. Um, I would say that my wife, if she's listening, she is an excellent uh, seamstress, at least to me, because I am not excellent, and she knows how to operate the sewing machine. I have no fucking clue. So even more credit to Mr. Hunt for inventing some goddamn you know, monstrosity of a mechanism that apparently works extremely well and is still even used to this day in some form. Now, what sets this one apart, by the way, is he actually never really patented this idea. He came up with it and he thought about patenting it, um, but he never did. Now, the legend has it that he refused to patent the idea because he didn't want to put seamstresses out of work, but that's probably more of a load of bullshit. It's more likely that he didn't do it because... You know, there was just nobody was going to nobody was going to do anything with it. You know, it was just one of those things that just didn't seem viable to him at the time. And it, that was that that was that for him, although he did sell the rights um, to make the machine. So he sold rights. He didn't sell the actual patent itself, but he sold the rights to make the machine. And then he maybe thought this was going to be his big break to the aforementioned George Aerosmith who, as we heard a little bit earlier, was also the one who bought the patent for his repeating rifle. Now, Aerosmith takes these rights, and he takes this idea, and he attempts to have this sewing machine manufactured, but he's not having any luck getting money from people, you know, to to sort of make this work, mostly because other investors didn't give a shit because there were tons of seamstresses working super-duper cheaply at the time, so they didn't figure that it was uh, entirely necessary. So he just said, oh, whatever, uh, I'm going to give up on this project. Hunt had also given up on it, and you know it was whatever. There was not even a patent for it sitting out there, although, and this is key to the rest of this story, the design was still out there. So moving forward a little bit in time, about a decade from that point, um, a man named Elias Howe Jr. decides that, hey, I'm going to make a sewing machine. And he comes up with a commercially viable sewing machine, and he starts to try to sell this own thing. So Howe, who is uh, 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 this guy who, uh, by all accounts, anybody saw him, had independently invented and patented his own lockstitch-type sewing machine, just like Hunt had made, got the attention of some other companies like Singer, which you may have heard of, still a company today. And they see this really cool design, but since it's not a patented design, they decide, hey, man, fuck it. And they just start making their own, basically copying Howe's design. And then Howe starts suing them, saying, well, fuck you, Singer. This is my design. You're copying me. You know, Look at this sort of thing. So there's litigation going on. Eventually, Singer or somebody uproots or uh, finds Hunt's previous design for the invention, which is a decade old now at this point, and the companies start to argue, well, this guy already made this sewing machine. He didn't even throw a patent on it, so basically we're just copying his design, not your design, and we can copy it all we want. He didn't patent it. Um, You patented yours. We don't give a shit because we're actually copying his design, which is unpatented. Uh, even though it looks literally very much like yours, that's the one that we are doing it. Well, then Hunt himself 
this is a decade later after the whole thing went down. Hunt himself hears about all this litigation, decides, I'm going to get my fucking foot in here. I'm going to get myself into the game. And decides to see if he can rec- retroactively get a patent for for what he made and what all these companies are fighting over so he can maybe get some money for this or get some royalties for the design. Um, at the same time, as he's doing this, he also begins work uh, on the sewing machine now that the, he sees that the the demand is there and that there are people wanting what's going on. He starts working up uh, an improved design that would solve a, a jamming problem that was a huge flaw on his original machine. It was still a flaw with Howe's machine as well. Um, and then he would patent that improvement. But interestingly enough, he, as he always does, sold that patent, you know, the rights to that patent after having received the patent because he could never stick with anything, apparently. He just would be a genius and invent something awesome and then just basically give it away for the most part. Now, during the litigation, they did refuse, the patent office did refuse to give Hunt a retroactive patent for his original design. They did actually acknowledge that he did invent the device, but that Howe's patent was still valid owing to how having applied for the patent first. So even though 10 years had passed since Hunt had done something, Howe was the first one to apply, so his patent was still viable and valid, and Hunt just wasn't going to get shit for it, saying, hey, man, we know you invented it, but you didn't patent it, dude. So, I mean, sorry, I guess. So there you go. Um in 1858, now we're getting towards the end of his life here, Singer actually did settle out of court with Hunt, hoping that they were going to just say, you know what, we're fucking around with this How guy, you know, how about we just get you out of the picture too, we're going to copy your design, here's some money for it, you know, whatever, and he might have made his biggest uh, payday here when uh, Singer gave him $50,000, which is about a million and a half dollars of two days money. And basically they were giving him a paltry sum for copying his design and making millions and millions of dollars off. And they get, here's, here's your 50 grand, bro. So what's, what's going to happen now? He, finally, he made it right. Hunt finally did it. He got 50 grand off of something. He could, he can support his family. Now he finally made his, oh no. Oh, he's not going to make any money. Is he? Of course not, because later on, very shortly after the agreement was made and before the $50,000 could be given to him, he died of pneumonia. So that's how Walter Hunt's life kind of went. He was this prolific inventor. And by the way, those are probably his most famous inventions. Before we sort of wrap this up and get into our Snapple cap fact of the week, Hunt also had patents and inventions for, uh, let me look here at my list here. He in, he patented and invented a more efficient oil lamp. He uh, invented an attachment to boats that allowed, him, allowed them to break through ice, still used today. Um, he had various improvements on bullet and casing designs, so he was definitely into the firearms uh, industry. He had a uh, rope-making machine that he invented. He invented a machine that made nails. He improved the fountain pen. He uh, made the portable knife sharpener, so that's fun. He he had an innovative saw design. Um, he actually invented a coal-heated convection oven, so one of the first like really well-done convection ovens Mr. Hunt invented as well. And he also, his weirdest, his weirdest invention, he invented a uh, device uh, that allowed people to walk on the ceiling called the uh, Antipodean Apparatus, and he sold that to the circus. So, anyhow, this dude invented like a billion things. He was extremely intelligent. He was a genius, but there was nothing, nothing he could do to actually make it big. Every time he'd invent something, it was either because he had to invent something to make some money, which he would obviously quickly sell the patent to, or he would invent something, not know what it was worth, and then either forget about it, not patent it, like in the case of the sewing machine, or he would patent it, forget about it, then he'd be in trouble and say, well, I have this patent, I guess I'll sell it to somebody for uh, peanuts, and then those people would eventually you know, develop it and make millions of dollars off it. And then he finally makes a big score out of court, making 50 grand from Singer, and promptly gets pneumonia and croaks. So 
this is sort of I don't know. I mean, this is a weird story. He he's not a Superman. Uh, like a lot of my uh, stories that I've had the last few weeks of these just amazing, insane people who've done the most insane things on Earth. He's no Superman. He was just an average Joe, you know, raised in upstate New York on a farm, you know, big family. Um, but he held the brain of 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 a genius. He held the brain of a guy like Nikola Tesla or or Thomas Edison or other prolific inventors. This is a guy who came up with a ton of stuff and he was just perfectly uh, mechanically minded. He was a, a he's a fantastically kind of weird, interesting story where he just kind of sits in there in, you know, late 1700s, early 1800s America, just a just a guy making stuff and making tiny amounts of money on that stuff when he really could have been, uh, especially with the the ubiquity of things like the safety pen. He could have been one of the richest men in the country had he just known what he had or if he knew how to sell himself. So there's your episode 18, folks. Let's hit that Snapple Cat fact of the I gotta look around here. I'm gonna see if I can see if I can find one of them. Snapple Cat fact of the week. This is real fact number 183. It is from, of course, a delicious peach Snapple, as I am, like I say before, I am want to have, want to get. You know they still make, you know they, they don't make Snapple in the glass, uh, the glass bottles anymore. That's a fact, I guess. It's not the fact we're going to use, but it is the fact. They, they finally, uh, one of the final holdouts in the, in the major pop companies, um, the three major pop companies being Seven Up. Coke and Pepsi, um, one of the holdouts still using glass bottles in arguably one of their most recognizable brands, they finally moved to a plastic bottle, which I think is total bullshit because it takes away the awesomeness of Snapple itself. But anyway, anyhow, this is real fact number 183, and it states that the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. has 365 steps to represent every day of the year. That's a stupid fact. Snapple, that's a dumb fucking fact, and you should feel bad about it. Guys, that's the end of the episode, episode 18 in the books. As for social media sort of things, you can find me on Twitter, at Kyle Steinhauser, where I am often retweeting nihilist Arby's or other things that I find funny or interesting or I'm tweeting at somebody angrily like you know as the internet works you can find me on Instagram at Kyle F. Steinhauser I am not as active there as I was when I started the show but I may become so uh, as we move along there so but if you want to find me there or talk to me there you can you can find the group on Facebook knowledge from the couch podcast search that on Facebook and you will find us we have nearly 100 likes now which is Fun and fantastic. You may also find me personally on Facebook. Just search my name. I'm the Nebraska version of this. Uh, what else is there? Knowledgecouch at gmail.com is the email episode for the show. If you'd like to email me anything of interest or of note, if you want to pretend like we are dialing up AOL in 1997 and sending me a sweet, sweet email, you can fantastically and wonderfully do that if it so pleases you. Um... What else is there? I don't know. Not much else to speak of at the moment. Uh, the show is is going as planned, so to sp- I guess. I don't know. Um, we're going to have a bonus episode next week, though. Expect that around Tuesday or Wednesday. It'll be a little bit of a shorter one on a guy who is a ridiculous person, who has a ridiculous story, and he himself didn't do anything really great with his life. It's how absolutely durable this man was that's going to make for an interesting story that will be your mini episode for next week i haven't done one of those i think since about the fourth or fifth episode so it's i was doing them a lot more often than i just went weekly i'm going to have another episode come out very soon here and then next week obviously we'll be on to episode 19 as well it's fantastic we're getting near 20 we've got a lot of content out there now we have hours and hours and hours of listening pleasure for everyone to engage in if you think somebody would like to listen to this show recommend it to them if you 
while you're hanging out in Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, if you would like to leave a rating, all you got to do is is put a star rating in. Just click on the five-star action for five-star content that this definitely isn't, but we can we can still pretend it is. You can do that. You can also leave a review, and if you leave a review, I will most certainly read it, starting with episode 19. I will start reading people's reviews. I hope <laughs> I hope that I don't only have to do that for a couple episodes because that's all the reviews that I have. So if you're if you're doing something, leave a five-star rating, which will be wonderful, and leave a review. It can be mean. It can be nice. It can be funny. It can be nonsensical. I don't give a shit. I will read whatever you type verbatim. Wonderful. Also, check the show notes for the link. DJ Quads, I am using his music a lot in this episode. Again, go check out his SoundCloud page. It's dope. He's dope. Thanks, dude, for letting me use your music. I truly appreciate it. It is wonderful. And guys, until next time, please keep learning new, weird, interesting things, and please just be nice to each other. Guys, I'm out of here.